Hey guys, it's your host Sam Thornton. Before this episode begins, I wanted to promote the DL Sports Instagram page. The page has a wide variety of sports content with graphics, reels, highlights, and more. So before this episode begins, what I want you guys to do is go ahead, pull out your phone, and follow the Instagram page at DLSportsCom. That's at DLSportsCom. Thanks, guys, and enjoy the show. On this week's episode of On The Deal Podcast, lots and lots of NFL talk. NFL training camp has begun, so we're going to dig into some news and updates from various teams from across the league. We're going to debate who should be the Carolina Panthers' week one starter, Baker Mayfield or Sam Darnold. Of course, we're going to discuss the saga of Kyler Murray. And finally, we have an incredible interview with ESPN sports betting analyst and host of Daily Wager on ESPN, Joe Fortenbaugh. There's lots to get into for this episode, so let's not waste any time and get things started. Welcome to episode number five of On The Deal Podcast, and Kyler Murray is officially the owner of the Arizona Cardinals. Congrats to Kyler Murray, who bullied the Cardinals not only to give him the second highest paid contract in the NFL, but also got out of his weekly homework that was required within his contract. And if you aren't familiar with this news, I'll give you the Sparknotes version real quick because I have a lot of thoughts about this. The Arizona Cardinals last week made Kyler Murray the second highest paid quarterback in the NFL with a long-term extension with $180 million guaranteed. So that's the second highest guaranteed money in the entire NFL. It came out a few days after the deal was signed. There was a clause within the contract that required Kyler to complete four hours of independent study. This sort of thing has never been implemented within a contract before. So the media immediately began to speculate, why is this in here? Obviously, this is what the media does. This is the stuff I do. Clearly, we came to the conclusion that there is a problem with Kyler's commitment to studying film or just general preparation for games or else why would this clause be in the contract? Why would this be implemented in there? This went on for a couple days until Kyler called for a press conference and addressed the situation and he said, that it was, quote, disrespectful and almost a joke that the media thinks he doesn't prepare for games or lacks commitment to the game of football. Shortly after he addressed the media, the Cardinals terminate the study clause within the contract due to too much distraction created within the media. That's all they were getting peppered with on and off the field. So they decided just to altogether just get rid of this thing. He gets his money, and now he doesn't have to do his homework. So let's just take a deep breath and let's digest this whole situation because this is one of the most ridiculous sagas that I can remember in quite some time. And I'm not kidding when I say that. The whole situation is absolutely ridiculous. First of all, if you are the Arizona Cardinals and you are aware that your quarterback has an issue with commitment to the game, commitment to film study, whatever the case may or may not be, Why the hell are you giving him $100 million in guaranteed money? Think about that. And listen, I'm a Kyler fan, but let's be real here. He has never won in the postseason. He only has won the regular season. And they didn't even win the NFC last year after starting 7-0. 
So not only are you taking a gamble that he's going to pan out and win you a Super Bowl, which I believe that he will do one day, but you know he has an issue on top of all of his current play. You have every right to say, if we're going to give you this bag of money, we need to make sure you're doing this. If you're the Arizona Cardinals, that is completely okay to do. I see nothing wrong with that. But why are you taking that sort of risk? From a business standpoint, do they really believe in him? Obviously they do, because they said the money in the contract reflects our commitment to him. But it just seems that you wouldn't do that if you were 100% in. If you put all the chips in, you don't want to hesitate. You just want to go for it. It's almost like there's an 85% commitment going on here. A good analogy to put it is when you're starting to first talk to a girl, things are going well, you've been on a couple dates, and then she hits you with the, I really like you, but there's a but going on here. Let's just address Kyler Murray. Kyler Murray, the media was never disrespecting you. The Arizona Cardinals were disrespecting you. The media did not make up rumors in midair that this was going on. There were dozens of media members defending you and presenting the question of why. Why was this in there? Because it's so ridiculous that it was in there in the first place. What we saw was in that contract. There weren't rumors. There weren't stigmas against you. There wasn't a false narrative. There was an actual clause printed on the paper that said you had to do this or else you weren't going to get all your money. And by the way, you never answered the question of why it was in there. But I think we know the answer. There is a problem, and it was addressed in the contract. If you thought he was disrespectful, you wouldn't have signed it, brother. Kyler is one of the most talented players in the NFL. There's no doubt about that. I believe in his talent. I believe in his abilities. I think he would lead the Arizona Cardinals to a Super Bowl. He's that great. It's just silly that all of this has come out. And it's even more infuriating to media members like myself who defend players in these kinds of situations. And then the players blame it on the media. You should not be mad at us. You should be mad at the people who put it in the contract. We didn't present or make up a narrative. We simply repeated and speculated why it was in the contract. Excited to see what happens with him in the NFL season. I think he's going to do great. I think he's going to prove a lot of people wrong this year. He has to bounce back from last year's postseason performance against the Rams, especially with these first six games without his number one receiver in DeAndre Hopkins. It's going to be exciting to see what he can do on his own if he can carry his own weight. Speaking of this NFL season, football is officially back, or at least if you want to put it in the legal terms, NFL training camp has officially begun, and you know what that means. Nothing but highlights, injury reports, and that's exactly what I have for you guys. A significant injury down in Tampa Bay occurred within Tom Brady's interior line. All-pro center Ryan Jensen suffered a knee injury that will most likely have him out for the entire season. And that hurts. If he does make a return, it won't be until December or January, based on what head coach Todd Bowles had to say in a press conference after practice. This is now the third interior lineman for the Buccaneers to either go down or leave the Bucs since last season. This is absolutely the last thing you want for a 45-year-old quarterback. And I don't think people really realize how important the connection is between centers and quarterbacks. Jensen was not some average Joe center. He was a beast. He had chemistry with Brady for a few years. So this one is definitely a loss. 
And if you want to take a look at the depth chart now, all signs point to this kid from Notre Dame. Robert Hainsey, he was taken in the third round last draft. And I'll tell you what, I was definitely speculating and had my doubts, but this kid saw some of his highlights from college, and he really impressed me. Obviously, the NFL is a different animal, but I was pleased with what I saw. However, he only played in 31 snaps last year, and all of them were at center. He was also a right tackle in college, so he made the switch when he joined the Bucks, which is another hurdle you have to get over. Changing positions like that and going up in playing level, not so easy as it seems. Some big shoes to fill, especially when you have the greatest player to ever play the game of football right behind you. I think this injury is going to be extremely impactful early on in the season, and it could be a problem all season long. And it's a good thing that, well, it's never a good thing when a player goes down and gets hurt, but it's a good thing that Jensen got hurt when he did because the Bucks can now adjust while they can and still have time in training camp before the season begins. That's going to be a very interesting development. I'm going to be tuning in, going to be reading articles, going to see what people are saying, what Todd Bowles is saying about this kid. This is very important, and we'll see how it works out for him. Let's travel over to Las Vegas. The high-octane offense of the Raiders has begun their training camp. And I'm just going to say this. I think top to bottom, the Las Vegas Raiders could have the best offense in the NFL. And yes, I believe that. I think they could even be better than the Buffalo Bills, the Kansas City Chiefs, list goes on and on. Think about it. They finished just outside the top 10 last season in offensive production, all-purpose yards, and if you add the best receiver in the game at De- with Devontae Adams, that's a wrap. In addition, you have an offensive guru as your head coach now, Josh McDaniels. This is, this is a match made in heaven. Let's take a look at more of their weapons that we know of. Hunter Renfro, one of the best route runners in the NFL. Jaron Waller, one of the best tight ends in the NFL. Josh Jacobs, one of the best all-around and all-purpose running backs in the NFL. And then you have Derek Carr, who's just outside the top 10. You could make the argument he's a top 10 quarterback. Can you imagine if they still had Henry Ruggs as well? This is a very scary offense. And that connection between Carr and Adams, that's going to be something. Especially when you consider Carr's ability to close out games on game-winning drives. He has that clutch gene in him. He's going to have the best red zone target with him now. Devontae, ooh, man, that, I cannot wait for that connection. That's going to be so fun to watch. And on top of it all, he looks clean in those Raiders threads. I'll tell you what, it's going to be really, really fun to watch that AFC West division. I've been thinking about this almost every day, getting ready for football season, You know, figuring out the divisions, where, where is everyone going to end up this year, what are teams going to look like. I've been trying to predict what I think is going to happen within this AFC West division and who's going to finish first, who's going to be the one team that doesn't get into the playoffs. It's going to be crazy. Right now, I'm going to stick with my pick. I think the Chargers, the Los Angeles Chargers, are going to win this division. And if I had to select one team that's not going to make the playoffs, it's going to be the Denver Broncos, even with the addition of Russell Wilson. Not this year. I know you guys have a great all-around roster, but I'm just taking a look at all these teams, man. I, I can't. I have to put them last in the in the table before the pre in the preseason right now. I just can't pull myself to put them in front. So that's what I'm thinking right now. Cannot wait to watch that division. On the topic of QBs, let's talk about Lamar Jackson. Lamar has been in numerous headlines recently. First, there was the 
anonymous quote from a defensive coordinator criticizing his talent. And clearly, whoever said that has never beaten Lamar or is just straight up is just a straight up hater. But more recently, there's been hype about Lamar's Lamar building muscle over the offseason to improve his overall strength. There was that viral picture on Twitter that came out of him looking just absolutely jacked up. And with that buildup of muscle, he's apparently gotten a lot better with his arm. I read an article yesterday about how, how he performed on Friday's camp. He's doing real well, according to offensive coordinator Greg Roman. On Friday, he completed 18 of 25 of his passes. That's 72%, which according to reports had some drops in there, which is nothing new. Good thing that got rid of Hollywood Brown because that would have been double the drops. So for all of the Lamar haters out there, you need to be put on notice. I think he's going to be absolutely outstanding this year, and he's got to earn that long-term extension, whether that comes before the season begins or middle of the season, end of the season. But he could be a low-key sneaky pick to win MVP. And the Ravens are always quality. That I can't remember the last time the Ravens had a down year. And remember last year, they started out the season real well. Even before the season began, they were banged up with injury. And they came out and surprised everyone. It wasn't until probably, I think it was like middle of the season, when they started to fall off and the injuries just piled up to be too much, Lamar got hurt. It was just too much to overcome, but they're a good team. They're gritty. They always compete. Harbaugh's a great coach. Watch out for the Ravens and Lamar Jackson this year. Finally, let's finish with rookie receiver Traylon Burks. From things I've been reading online within Tennessee outlets, this kid has been balling out in training camp. When you take a look at the Titans roster, They've cleaned house in their offense, in particular their receiving core. They lost A.J. Brown, as we know he's with the Eagles. Julio Jones just signed a deal with the Bucks, But they brought in Robert Woods from the Rams and drafted Burks out of Arkansas. They still have the King. King Henry is making his return on the field as well, so he's going to be dominant as usual. They're going to be even more run-heavy than I think they have been in years past. I think he could be the best player, in the, and I, he could be the best player in the NFL, but we can debate that another time. But getting back on track with Burks, he is going to be targeted a lot this season. And those receivers, with those with those receivers out of the window, he was a, a standout in college. So he could absolutely be a favorite to win Offensive Rookie of the Year. I think he has the fifth best odds, I believe. Keep an eye on his production and training camp, and if you need a sleeper pick in your fantasy draft... I think deep in the draft, this could be an absolute steal. And if you want to take him, you know, mid, mid round, mid pick, couldn't be a bad pick either. People might look at you funny, but I think this kid could be really, really, really good. I watched him in college at Arkansas. He was outstanding. All right, that's it for NFL training camp updates. Let's hop into our interview with ESPN sports betting analyst Joe Fortenbaugh. I was ecstatic that we could get him on for you guys. He's one of the best in the business. So without further delay, here's Joe Fortenbaugh. Okay, guys, we now welcome on a very special guest. It is ESPN sports betting analyst and host of Daily Wager on ESPN, Joe Fortenbaugh. Joe, I'm so excited that you could join the show. I'm a huge fan of Daily Wager and a fan of yours. And I admittedly did some digging into your Instagram, and I casually came across your elaborate pocket square collection. So, <laughs> but 
Before we get into anything, please give me some insight in your background on that incredible collection. Sam, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for supporting the show. Thanks for watching. Thanks for reaching out. I appreciate you having me on. The, the Pocket Square game started uh, when I joined ESPN full-time and moved down here two years ago. It'll be this summer. So late August, two years ago, is when I started full-time with ESPN. And that meant, you know, previously I had been working from my home studio in San Francisco where I was also hosting a radio program. So I was only a part-time guy. When I was full-time, that meant I had to wear the full suit. As a part-time guy, I had like mesh shorts on, but I'd have the top half of the suit so it looked good on TV, but I had to do the full dress. And one thing my wife suggested was, you know, get creative with the pocket squares, make that part of the game. I don't know how to do many things for myself. I'm very helpless when it comes to a lot of stuff. So she took it upon herself to create something different every day. She found these websites where she did the different intricate patterns. She bought a bunch of them. And then she, every day she would coordinate it with the suit. So I, I have very little to do with dressing myself. That is all a compliment to my beautiful wife, Nikki. She handles all that. If there's a day you see me on TV where I look disheveled, that probably means she's out of town. <laughs> That's a great story. I know, of, of course, we have analysts on TV who are on there regularly, and they have uh, you know, these elaborate ties that they share to everyone, but I've never seen anyone with a pocket square collection quite like yours. So thank you for clearing that up. Yeah, you got it. It's my pleasure. Thanks for asking and checking the Instagram account. I, I haven't been as elaborate with that as of late because I believe she found maybe 50 or 52 variations, which once we got through all of them, that was kind of the end. I wasn't going to start posting repeats, so I kind of hit the end of the line, and now we just cycle back through. Yeah, that's great. That's fantastic. Joe, you have such a unique position at ESPN I really am just curious about your journey within your career and how does one even become a sports betting analyst? You know, I know thousands of people love to sports wager for fun during football, basketball, whatever you like to bet on, but how are you able to make this your living? Okay, so I've always enjoyed betting on games going back to when, you know, I was relatively young, five bucks with a friend here or there on Penn State, Notre Dame, whatever it may be. Uh, these little parlay cards we used to get from a buddy's older brother, where you could circle and pick eight games and throw in five bucks and maybe win like 300 if it hits, something like that. So I had always been doing it. I had been doing it in college. None of it was legal, obviously, at the time, unless you were in Las Vegas, which if I traveled to Las Vegas, I'd make bets. But what happened with me was the quick backstory, undergrad at Penn State, political science degree. Immediately after that, I went to San Diego to go to law school for three years. I wanted to be an NFL agent. So I wanted to get a law degree to learn contracts, to learn arbitration, negotiation, all that stuff. I interned for an NFL agent while I was out there. And after I left law school, I, I didn't necessarily want to follow the agent path. I wanted to work in an NFL front office, being a salary cap guy. I wasn't able to make that work. But as I was trying to make that work, the same agent who had let me intern for him started a website called National Football Post. He wrote on it. A couple of former NFL general managers wrote on it, a former NFL player. And I got a chance to manage the website, but they also let me write about fantasy football. So I started writing about that, had a great time doing it. Then I wanted to add a sports betting component. Um, there weren't really anyone, a lot of people covering sports betting at major publications. Chad Millman was doing it at ESPN, but it was kind of buried uh, further back on the website. But I wanted to do it because I enjoyed it, and I figured there was a market for it. And one of the things I did, and I had like a maxed out $2,000 credit card. I had almost no money to my name. I wasn't dating anyone. I had like no life. I'm back in PA at this point. I'm late 20s. And I decided, you know what, 
to heck with it. I'm going to move to Las Vegas. I'm going to go to Las Vegas and I'm going to cover sports betting for one season. I'm going to get to know as many bookmakers as I can. I'm going to get to know as many professional gamblers as I can. I'm going to use them as resources for articles I write, trying to teach people why the line's moving, what bets might be sharp, what bets might be square. And I'm going to start covering it. And essentially, I kind of knew I was probably going to stay, but I kept telling everyone I was just going to the football season. Well, I ended up staying. I was there three years. And the big reason why I did that was I was essentially making a bet that at some point, sports betting would be legalized. And if it was, I would be uniquely positioned as a guy who was covering it for a while. Like I already had my, my, my stake set up out here. During this time I'm doing all this, I get an opportunity to host a morning sports talk radio show in San Francisco. So I move up there in 2014. I'm doing that full time, but I'm still writing, tweeting, podcasting about sports betting. And while I'm up there, eventually, somehow, sports getting gets, betting gets legalized. PASPA gets repealed, and suddenly offers start coming in. Offers to join this company to do this part-time or to do this or do that. All that work I had put in getting ahead of the game, you know, the floodgates opened and all these people in the media suddenly looked and said, hey, there's an opportunity in sports betting. They, had been, they should have been looking at that three, five years prior. Like, that's where you make the bet. You get ahead of the game. You don't do it after it's legalized. So I kind of held out for ESPN. I turned some stuff down. I got an audition. It moved slowly. But again, I just kept betting that I did well with the audition and I'd get a chance. And sure enough, I did part-time. So when we launched the show, I was a part-time contributor on Daily Wager. This is March three years ago, so 2019. And eventually then turned that into a full-time position when they moved their operation to Las Vegas. So I know that's a very long-winded story, but that's kind of how I got into it. And that's how I am, how I am where I am right now. Yeah, that's an incredible story, and it seems that you are one of the, if you if you want to call it that, you are a pioneer of, uh, you know, being a big media personality within, within sports betting, and you definitely bet on yourself, no pun intended. But yeah. was, uh, that's a terrific story of just um, resilience and you know, going to live your dream. That's incredible. Well, you know what one of the keys was, I'll, I'll drop one last note on you. Sorry for interrupting. But one no of the worries. keys was when, when all these companies started looking for people who could cover sports betting, right? The, the, the reason I was uniquely positioned was that I had a background in media. You know, I had hosted a radio show for six years. In addition to that, I had hosted podcasts. I had appeared on some TV stuff. I had some clips. I wasn't doing anything full-time, but I had at least been able to do that and get some reps, which is very important for the young people listening. Start a YouTube channel. Like, just get the reps of being in front of the camera and then go back and critique yourself. It's not easy, but do it. It'll make you better. But I, I had that unique crossover where I understood sports betting and I understood media. There were a lot of really smart sports betting guys who didn't get jobs because they, they weren't good on TV, they weren't good on radio, they didn't understand the media component. And then there's a lot of great media people who just don't know sports betting. They're jumping in saying whatever because they're hoping they could find a niche. Like somehow I had luckily positioned myself to know both avenues. I knew sports betting and I knew media and that's what uniquely positioned me because at that time there were only a real small handful of us out there. Absolutely, that's a terrific story of yours. Joe, do you ever feel the pressure of giving people wager advice? Like you have, like, have you ever had instances where you said, I feel so confident about this pick and it was absolutely wrong? Or do you, do you just altogether ignore those thoughts, those negative thoughts and just trust your expertise within sports betting? Great question. I absolutely have those thoughts because anyone who's done this long enough, and I'm talking about the sports betting angle of it, 
you're going to go through the downside. Like you're going to go through the downtimes, whether you want to or not, whether you're, you're great at what you do or not. There's no, the best in the world are picking what? 58%, right? 55%, 53% will break even, 55% can make a living. If you're hitting 60%, you're doing outstanding. Well, that means you're failing 40% of the time. And sometimes that means that 40% is coming over a two, three week stretch where you can't see anything right. Just like you'll have great runs where it feels like every game is so easy. You'll have runs where you'll stare at some of these games and think to yourself, my God, I have no feel for this whatsoever. So the best thing to do in that case is to stay away. On TV, you can't stay away from everything though. You know, it's ESPN. Uh, Monday, we, we have Monday night football. They're going to want you to talk about the Monday night game. So what you try to do is to make it clear whether you really like it, whether it's just a thought. You know, if you hear me say something like, I'm just, make, it's, I'm just leaning this way, I, 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 if I'm betting it, I'm betting it small. Sometimes you'll hear me say a small half unit play because I want the audience to know what the confidence level is. But yeah, absolutely. The, the, when you go ice cold, you hate that thought because one, it's, it's you know, it weighs on you. And then number two, you know there are people out there that are using the information and they're probably getting beat too. And you ultimately want them to succeed. So hopefully you're not, you're not just educating them on the process of making picks, the process of trying to learn how to handicap, line shopping, all that. You also want to educate them on bankroll management. You know, never putting yourself in a situation where one game is going to mean that much to you, right? Uh, yeah, a three-game losing streak, you can survive it because you budgeted for it. That stuff's important, but that's where a lot of meditation comes in. I'm big on that. I'm not going to get all zen on you here, but you've got to have a clear mind. You've got to have a, a relatively healthy lifestyle so that mentally you can work through the tough times and you can also stay calm and not get arrogant during the good times. Totally. And that's terrific advice for any sports bettors out there, whether you're placing $5 bets, $10 bets, all the way up to something a lot larger than that. And you, you alluded to working for ESPN and just the gravity that comes with that position Striving and ambitious young media members like myself view ESPN as, you know, the, the pinnacle or the you made it dream job. What is it like working for ESPN behind the scenes? And is it everything you thought it would be like? ESPN is awesome for a lot of different reasons. Um, my, my experience is a little bit more unique because I'm here in Vegas where we have a studio set up. Uh, we're at the link, which is a Caesars owned property because we have a relationship with Caesars. So there's a studio on the third floor roof of the link where the backdrop, if you've watched the show, you can see all of Caesar's Palace. That's how they wanted to design it. It's a beautiful backdrop. Within that studio, we have the main studio where you see Daily Wager. We have Studio Two, which Paul Feinbaum was out here hosting a radio show in there. We also do some digital streaming in there. And then Studio Three is a very small room where you sit in a chair and stare at a camera. And that's the studio where you can appear on Sports Center or other shows. Like when you see one guy appearing just in a room with a backdrop, that's what that studio is for. There's a green room. There's a makeup room. That's my experience with ESPN. It's a beautiful facility, but I never spent prolonged time in Bristol. I've been there, but I've never been on the main campus for an extended period of time. I haven't been on the LA campus for an extended period of time. So I really can't speak to that. But what I have is awesome. I love it here. And I know if I was in Bristol or something else, I would love that as well. I, I think the coolest thing about being here is just the, the sheer amount of resources at your disposal. If you need help with research, there's an entire stats and information department that can help you out. If you need access to players to run something by them, I mean, think about all the ex-athletes. 
that are there now, all the people who can help guide your career from a TV standpoint, from a radio standpoint, people you can bounce ideas off of, people you can bounce creative ideas off of, people in digital where you can pitch ideas. It's crazy. And then just from a personal standpoint, the access to credentials is huge because I love covering title fights. When ESPN has the fight, you can sit close to the ring. Um, if you're looking to cover games that ESPN is on TV, a lot of times they have tickets available and stuff like that. So that's just for the fan in me, that part's awesome because we get crazy access to stuff. So every which way, I mean, I love working there. It's a massive company. There's a lot of people. It's very competitive, but that's how it should be. That's going to bring out the best of you. That's a terrific point. And you really brought up and highlighted how many different resources there are at ESPN and at any large media outlet. You know, when you're by yourself with, you know, a small media or your own company like I'm doing right now, you have to, you know, you have to do everything by yourself. You have to learn new things by yourself. You have to come up with stats by yourself. You got to do more research. It seems like, like you just said, it's a whole team. It's, you know, it's, it's a, it's teamwork and there's so many different things that you can go to for help. And it really shows that I've noticed even on ESPN and on other uh, media outlets, but mainly on ESPN, it seems like you guys are just one big family. Without question. And I would also say this, the path you're going and the path, a lot of people probably listening to this younger people be diverse, learn how to do it all. Just, just the more you can bring to the table, the better off you're going to be. I think one of the things that helps me with th this position is, yes, I can talk about sports betting as an analyst, but I can also host if need be, right? And I can do TV and I can do radio because I have that background, which means I can host on radio or I can be an analyst on radio. I can also host a podcast or be an analyst on a podcast. I can do a live stream. I can do YouTube. I can write. I'm able to contribute in so many different ways. It just ups my value, right? Like that's what you want to do. You want to be able to help the company in as many ways as possible because that's what makes you valuable. I've always tried to say, the analogy I've always used is I'm not going to hit 60 home runs in a season. Like I'm not going to be Aaron Judge. I'm not going to be Juan Soto, but I could be Ben Zobrist. And for everyone who remembers Ben Zobrist, Ben Zobrist could play every position in the field other than pitcher and catcher. Ben Zobrist could hit righty and lefty. Ben Zobrist could hit 300. Like he brought all that to the table. So he had a job because you could put him anywhere you needed to in the field. He could face right-handed pitching, left-handed pitching, and he could hit 300. There aren't a lot of guys that can do that. That doesn't mean he's going to the all-star game, but he's going to be employed. So that's kind of what I recommend for a lot of young people is learn what it's like to do all of it yourself. Learn what it's like to set up the camera, to figure out the lighting, to figure out the audio, to get in front of the camera, then to produce it, edit it, get it up on YouTube, all that stuff. Learn how to do it from a podcast standpoint. It's going to give you a better understanding of how the job works. It's going to give you a better understanding of how the people around you, what their responsibilities are. So you're going to appreciate and respect that more. And it's just going to give you the all around skills you need to go further because you're going to offer more value. That's a great point of advice. And I've seen this in my undergrad studies. You know, I have so many fellow students that say, you know, I want to be a writer or I want to be a TV personality or I just want to do radio. And it, what you just said is, the, you know, a, the first time I've really heard that you really need to be a five-tool player in media because of how competitive it is. You need to be a Swiss Army knife and have a big arsenal within your range so that you can be ready for whatever your job asks of you. Um, that's terrific advice, Joe. I'm going to switch gears here. Who is the funniest person you work with that people might not think is funny or who is like the work clown that always gives people a smile on their face at ESPN? 
<laughs> uh, well, like I said, out here, we, um, we have a really small group. You know, it's only a, a handful of us. So on the show, it's Doug, Tyler, and myself. Tyler's a great time, obviously. He's always smiling. Doug's hilarious because his sense of humor is very different. If you get his sense of humor, um, it's a lot of betting humor. It's a lot of if you've been betting a long, long time, the jokes about bad beats, the jokes about outs, the jokes about, you know, FedExing, for, for those who know what that is. I'm not going to go into too many details. It can be hilarious. So there's, there's different personalities there that are a lot of fun to work with. Um, I, I would love to give you a better answer. I, I've always gotten a kick out of uh, Myron Medcalf, if you know who he is. I do radio with him and Matt Jones on Saturday. We do game day. Matt's got a great sense of humor as well. He's very self-deprecating. Myron's hilarious because Matt and I both have legal backgrounds, and Myron doesn't, and he uses it in such a great way to make jokes when we're arguing about something during football season because Matt and I rarely agree, but when we do, if Myron's on the other side, he'll always have this big speech about how he's not a lawyer, but, and it's just hilarious. So it's, it's really a matter of, I don't know, just getting paired up with the right people and having the right chemistry. Most people I've come across are, are a real treat to be around. And if they don't have a great sense of humor or they're not a practical joker, they're still just, they just have a great warm personality. That's one thing the company does well. I've been very fortunate. It seems like everyone I'm working with is always just very friendly, very courteous, very respectful, very professional would be the term I would use. Um, Jason Fitz is another, uh, when I've had the pleasure of working with Fitz, that dude is such a goofball. Um, you can throw any jokes at him you want and he'll, he, he plays the role of like sad puppy so well, so well, love working with Fitz. <laughs> That's a great answer. I was super curious about that just out of, you know, watching ESPN being a casual fan. I'm going to also shift gears here with you, Joe, shifting to strategies for this NFL and college football season. What advice would you give to sports bettors out there who are eager to bet week one games, especially with week one? It's a new season and really anything can happen and surprise you with your picks. So what is just some general advice that you would give to sports bettors out there for week one and just in general for the for both those seasons, NFL and NCAA? Sure. I'd start with this. Bankroll management is incredibly important. Do not put yourself in a position where you're betting more than you can afford because all that's going to do, and I'm not going to sit here and lecture you on, oh, you're going to lose your money. What I'm going to tell you is that's going to affect your decision-making. Here's a perfect example. And I have made this stake plenty of times in my past. I don't want anyone to think that I haven't done this before, but you go into an NFL Sunday, say you go into an, a college football Saturday and uh, I don't know, maybe you go four and six. It's not a great day. So you're down a little bit. No big deal because you say to yourself, I'm going to wake up. I can get it back on the NFL, right? How many times have we all said that? And maybe the NFL morning card doesn't go very well. Then the afternoon card goes even worse. You realize you've dug yourself a pretty big hole. And here comes the Sunday night game. And maybe you didn't really have much of an opinion on the Sunday night game up until this moment. But now that you're in this hole and it's the last game left of the weekend, you're going to chase. You're going to make a bigger bet than you would on a game you didn't even have a great feeling about because you're trying to make your money back. That is a very common mistake. And it's a horrible mistake because not only is it poor bankroll management, it's just the decision-making is flawed. You have to have clear decision-making. You have to understand you're not going to chase your money. Don't do it for the rush. It's got to be treated like a business. And if you're just doing it for fun, make sure there's no loss you can have or sustain. That's going to affect your attitude, right? If you have kids, are you going to end up being a jerk around your kids because you're all upset? 
if you've got a girlfriend or a wife, is she going to have to deal with your misery and your complaining? Like that stuff can seep out. You don't want this to cloud your judgment. You don't want this to affect your mood in that manner. So make sure your bankroll management is on par so that if you have a losing day, it's a losing day. You don't feel awful. Sure, you're a little bit bummed out, but it's not going to carry over and affect the rest of your life. You, ha you have to be able to do that just for peace of mind, but also so that you make good decisions with the rest of your life. It's so easy to lose money, then start drinking, then order pizza, and then boom, before you know it, it's bad financial decision-making, it's bad health decision-making, it's bad mental health decision-making. It can steamroll on you. And then you wake up Monday and you set yourself up for an awful week. No one wants that. So that would be first and foremost. Number two, from a betting standpoint, make sure you have at least two outs, I would say. Outs meaning two places where you can place bets. The reason for that is you should be shopping for lines. Here's an example. We're doing this podcast on Monday morning, right? Deshaun Watson has just been suspended for six games. At one book here in Las Vegas, there's a price that said for Cleveland to make the playoffs, it's plus 205, which means if you want to bet yes, that Cleveland makes the playoffs, a $100 bet will return $205 in profit. There's another book that offers the same prop, but it's minus 110, which means you have to risk $110 to win 100. That's huge. I found that the first two books I looked at, I saw those prices, the first two. And what that's telling us essentially is that you could get double your money, double your money on that bet by going to the other book, right? And the same thing happens with futures. Who's going to win the national championship? Who's going to win the Heisman? Who's going to make the playoffs? Who's, who's going to win this golf event? You see it in golf all the time. Make sure you have at least two outs so you can get better prices. Because if you're truly going to try to beat the books and win 53% or more of your games, you're going to need to have the best possible prices in order to do that. Exactly. And that's the, really the first time I've heard that strategy from someone before. Definitely having an out. But you alluded to earlier is very true. Just trying to win your money back. And there's two sayings in sports betting that I've heard like religiously, which is it only takes one game. And also, you're going to lose money no matter what you do. So that's a great advice that you that's some great advice that you just gave. And I will absolutely take that in mind. I'm sure others will. Uh, Joe, what is your favorite type of bet to place for football season? And why is the Alabama first half spread? <laughs> Bama first half. Oh, my God. Bama first halves. Let me tell you something about Bama. So I am a, and I'm not saying this because I know your background and I'm playing to your audience. I'm not saying this. This is 100% honest. This goes back to basically the start of saving getting there and turning that program around. I'm a Penn State grad. I'm a Big Ten guy. I grew up as a Florida Gators fan. And the main reason for that is my family used to travel to Florida quite a bit for like summer vacations. And we would drive down. And as we got older, my parents wanted my brothers and I to start seeing different college campuses so that we can get an idea of what college looks like. And the first place we ever stopped was a Friday night in Gainesville. I may have been like 11 years old and I remember getting out of the car and it was just nothing but beautiful, tan, blonde girls everywhere. And I just thought to myself as like an 11 or 12 year old, I was like, this place is the dream. I didn't even know what to make of myself on the Gainesville campus. So that was when Spurrier was there. It was a fun offense. I was a Gator fan, right? So long story short, Saban gets there. I, I, I have over the years made so many bets on Alabama to win so many games, so many first half bets, so many futures bets. They have won and delivered for me so many times. There is no way I can't love that program. Like it's, it's, it's appalling to my dad who grew up as a, as a Penn State fan way back in the day that I, that I root for Alabama. 
but but I, I I love them. They have delivered so many winning bets. There are so many times you just know that Saban's team is going to be well prepared and they're going to handle business. How many times they've covered the spread in week one of the season when they play these opening games, right? They're like 12 and two against the spread in week one under Saban. First half bets are incredible. So yeah, without question, Bama has a special place in my heart. Love betting Bama games. I found myself betting against Bama. There are times I've won, like the national championship. I was on Georgia there. But most of the time when I bet against Bama, I end up taking on the chin. I'll be completely honest. So those bets are always great. I'm trying to think of what else I like. You know, a lot of times it comes down to finding smaller teams or angles that people haven't necessarily caught up on yet. Uh, Baylor, when they were at their heyday, maybe eight years ago, betting them in the first half, they were a juggernaut, juggernaut. Chip Kelly's Oregon Ducks in the first half was a juggernaut. Stuff like that. There are always obscure teams like last year, Utah State. Uh, years ago when Willie Taggart was at uh, Western Kentucky. Teams that just find ways to cover spreads before the books catch up to it, before the public catches up to it, where you can cash. So my answer to that question is it changes every year because there's always a new story in college football. You know, a lot of the players stay in the same spot in the pros. College has such a major overhaul of, of players and coaches that every year it changes. So find me at some point this year, shoot me a text or whatever, five or six games in, and maybe I'll have that new team. And that'll be the bet I love the most this season. Love to hear that. And the interesting thing, thing is you mentioned Utah State. Alabama plays Utah State week one yeah. in Tuscaloosa. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure the spread is ridiculous. Like it's 35 points. 38 and a half. Yeah, which is, I I don't even think I'm going to touch that because Utah State is a good team. They're probably going to win their conference this year. And I have a good buddy of mine who showed me that the other day. And he was like, yeah, I might take Utah State here. Okay, so I can understand that because there's a few reasons. Uh, the Bear and I – oh, that's someone I should have mentioned. The Bear and Stanford Steve are awesome to work yeah, with. Those love, two guys love the bear. Love the Those bear. two guys are every bit as cool as they come off on TV. They are fantastic. Bear, every time he's in town, the key is to go out to dinner with him and let him order from the menu. He knows it better than anyone. Stanford Steve is like, is like the ultimate frat guy to go drinking beers with. The guy is fantastic, right? You just sit around and fire bets and make jokes all day. So Bear and I were having this discussion about Bama 38 and a half in week one. Utah State won a bunch of games last year, but they lost half their starters from that team. And there are some metrics that point to a regression coming. So it's not going to surprise me at all if Bama rules them. But Bama, if memory serves me correctly, has Texas the following week. And if Bama gets up, I could see them getting up. I would play the first half of this game because I think they get up and they probably allow zero points in the first half, probably something like 24 nothing after the first half but you're eventually going to get to a point where in the fourth, the starters are coming out. And 38 and a half, it's easy to get backdoored late in the game if Utah State finds a way to score. So I would lean to laying the 38 and a half because I could see this game being 50 to 10, but you also have to be worried about the second week with the starters going against Texas. So the first half play would be mine. And, and anyone who's taking Utah State plus 38 and a half, I can absolutely see why you're doing that because of the situation Bam is going to be in having Texas on deck. I can absolutely see it. Not telling you not to do it. Just saying, again, it's Bama. They do find a way to cover these games. 12-2 against the spread in week one, winning by an average of 29 points per game. And a lot of those games are against elite competition. Michigan, Virginia Tech, Clemson, Florida State. I think USC was in there. They play big games early, and they blow those teams out. Yeah, it seems like this happens every single year, especially – week one and I actually have been seeing on the Alabama Twitter timeline all these videos of do you remember when USC came out of the tunnel and they were like bear crawling on the field at like oh yeah yeah and that's been coming up but I 
totally understand your point with the Utah State game. The first half makes a lot more sense considering they are going to rest for that game in Austin the following week. Totally makes sense. Um, Joe, I have a question kind of banking off that question. Do you find more success with you know, betting with for the spread, money line, over under, player props? Is it Does it really matter to you or do you find more success with one or the other? Props. I would say props. Props are, are a I'm not going to say a beatable market because, again, you have to be very good to beat the bookmakers, but they're more beatable, in my opinion, than playing a side or a total. Think of it like this. The more marquee the game is, the more prominent the sport, the tighter the line. Like an NFL Monday night football game, that's going to be a really hard line to beat if you're betting it a few hours before kickoff. Same thing with the total. The bookmakers are on top of that. There is a reason that a lot of professional bettors specialize in WNBA, they specialize in college basketball, but not the SEC or the Big Ten. They're playing West Coast conferences and very small conferences. Uh, they specialize maybe in European soccer, but not the premier stuff. Uh, women's tennis, very big. Golf, very big. And you might say, I don't watch any of these sports. Who watches these sports? Why would they bet on that stuff? Because those numbers are beatable. You can get the information better than the bookmakers. You can handicap these games better right? Women's tennis, there's a lot of pros that are on that because they follow the sport religiously and they can find books that hang soft numbers. So that's, that's what you're looking for. If you want to beat this, if you're truly trying to be a pro, you have to look for the smaller, softer markets. And while there are no soft markets in the NFL, you have a better chance of beating the prop market than you do the sides and the totals. That's just a fact. And there's a reason why they'll let you come in and bet $20,000 on Monday Night Football but they'll only maybe let you bet 2,500 on a certain prop. They know that it's beatable. So I would say that if you're a fantasy guy, betting on props translates beautifully. Those are the markets you want to look at. You see it in baseball now too. A lot of guys are really good at first five innings because they take the bullpens out of it. A lot of guys are good at whether or not there'll be a run scored in the first inning because they can extract value on um, the pricing there. Stuff like that, over-under strikeouts, you're starting to see a lot of guys are, are zeroing in on because they, they look at advanced metrics, like whether or not you know a certain lineup hits the sinker ball really well and the opposing pitcher throws sinkers 75% of the time. You know that, That's the type of stuff people are zeroing in on if they're truly going to be able to beat this thing long-term. Yeah, player props. I've, I also have another buddy who loves player props, especially for the NFL season. You know, the big players, the, the, big, shot, the big shot players like Derrick Henry, rushing yards, um, all of that good stuff. So I totally understand what you're saying. Great advice for this season. All right, final question for you, Joe. This has been great. Just real quickly, give me your NFL and college football champion and then your NFL MVP and your Heisman winner for the season. All right, so here's what I'll do. I'm going to give you what I think are, are good bets. I'm not going to just pick who's going to win because, quite frankly, it would probably be something boring like, uh, you know, t I don't know, Tampa Bay versus Buffalo or something like that. But since we're talking betting, let's talk about bets. And if, I, if I'm going to make some futures bets, and I have, but a couple I would look at, in the NFL, I'd look at the Denver Broncos coming out of the AFC – I know it's a risk with Nathaniel Hackett as a rookie head coach, but I like the price. I like the defense. I like what Russ is going to bring to that offense. They, they should have been a nine-win team last season. Vic Fangio managed them out of so many games. They had terrible quarterback play. I think that's a team you want to look at in the futures market. Uh, my favorite bet of all, I'm going to give this one to you. It doesn't really answer your question, but for people looking to bet, the Colts at minus 120 to win the AFC South. People say it's a two-horse race. It's not. I think Tennessee is going to drop off big time. 
Matt Ryan was bad in Atlanta because of the line and the running game. He's got a great line and a great running game in Indy. He's going to be fine. They're going to win that division. So those are two bets I like in the AFC. In the NFC, I would play the Saints over eight wins. And I think the Saints are like 40 to one to win the Super Bowl. I'd make that bet as well. I think there's value there. That doesn't mean I think the Saints win the Super Bowl. I think the pricing is off. And I think once the Saints get to the playoffs, you'll have some opportunities to hedge against them and turn a profit. That Saints defense is top five. Jameis Winston led the league in passing in 2019. He's not incompetent, all right? The Saints last year went nine and eight. And in those 17 games, 10 were started by Trevor Simeon, Taysom Hill, or Ian Book, three guys who are not pro quarterbacks. Winston's a pro starter. And he's got Kamara. He's got Michael Thomas coming back, who didn't play at all last season. He's got uh, Chris Olave. They drafted out of Ohio State. He's got Jarvis Landry. So it's like 40 to one to win the Super Bowl. I play the Saints. I play the Broncos. And I play that Colts. Um, minus 120 to win the division. In college football this year, look, we know how this goes. There's no dark horses winning in college football. That's just a fact. No dark horses. I don't think there's value on Bama, but I think Bama's in the playoff. I'm not going to bet Georgia because I think if they get to the SEC championship game, Bama beats them. And if Georgia has another loss prior to that, they won't end up making the playoff. And I know the schedule is soft, but Georgia worries me. I like Ohio State a lot. Not a lot of value, but the focus is on the offense. Their weak spot last year was their defense. Their defense was terrible. So Kerry Combs is out as defensive coordinator. They hired Jim Knowles. Jim Knowles is coming over from Oklahoma State. For those who didn't pay attention, Oklahoma State was a top 10 scoring defense last season. Crazy to think that would happen in the Big 12, but it happened. They gave up less points than Bama. They gave up less points than Baylor. So I, I, I like what's going to happen on that defense. Ohio State's a team I'm very high on. For the Heisman Trophy, a long shot play. I know a lot of people are talking Will Anderson. I think he's got a shot, I know, but I think the odds have dropped too much to offer any value there. I would look at uh, Cameron Rising, the quarterback at Utah. You can get him at like 80 to 1. Utah should win the Pac-12. They're at Florida in week one. If somehow they find a way to win that game, 75 to 1 on Cameron Rising is going to be gone. They played much better with him at quarterback last year after he took over, and I believe the San Diego State game – his numbers were solid. He's a dual threat. He can run. He can score touchdowns. Utah should put up a bunch of wins and a bunch of stats. I think if you play Cam Rising 75-1 to 1, early in the season, that price won't be there. I think you can beat that number. I love all of those picks, especially the Denver Broncos pick intrigues me the most because that division is going to be so fun to watch this season. Absolutely. Yes. It's going to be ecstatic. I'm going to be tuning into all of those AFC West games. I actually put a future on another AFC West team in the Los Angeles Chargers. I think they're plus 1400 or something like that. So we'll see what happens. I'm just, I, I keep, I, I literally mentioned this earlier in the podcast. I have no idea who is going to win this division. I think about it every single day. Cannot wait. <laughs> Here's what's great about the Chargers. They, they, we all know about Herbert. We all know about the offense the big key for them is their defense stunk last year. Only the Lions and the Jets gave up more points than the Chargers did. So they go out and they trade for Khalil Mack and they sign J.C. Jackson, the top five corner out of New England, and bring him in. They shore up the front four and they shore up the secondary. If the defense improves and they won like nine games last year, watch out. They should win 12, 13 games with an improved defense. Absolutely. Joe, this has been terrific. Thanks so much for joining the show. You're more than welcome to come back on anytime you want. Definitely hope to stay in touch. And guys, make sure to tune in to Daily Wager weekdays on ESPN for more content from Joe and the crew. Joe, thanks so much again, and good luck with everything down the road.
Sam, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Best of luck. Feel free to reach out anytime, man. Yep. Thank you. Appreciate it. I hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Joe Fortenbaugh. Now we're going to finish up the show, getting into a debate between the biggest QB race of the offseason of this entire training camp, and that is Baker Mayfield versus Sam Darnold. First, I want you guys to hear just the reaction. This was a terrific video, probably the best video I saw this week on social media. Fans' reaction at Panthers training camp to Baker Mayfield and Sam Darnold walking into camp together on the first day of training. Go ahead and give this a listen. Nobody wants Sam Darnold as the starter. As a Panthers fan, I'm right there with them. The last fan who said something, you can't see him, but you know exactly what he looks like. Definitely heavy set, beer barrel gut, probably wearing a camo hat with camo cargo shorts with Costa sunglasses. Definitely has a long beard going on. That is just a terrific video. Shows you exactly how the fans feel. Matt Rule, please take note of that. Let's do a quick look at Sam Darnold's numbers last year. Just to, just to give you guys, if you're someone who isn't familiar with this quarterback battle, this is just common sense. And if you're an NFL fan and you're just a Baker hater, look, just, just listen to me real fast. Sam Darnold's numbers last year. A little over 2,500 yards, 9 touchdowns, 13 interceptions, a pass rating of 71.9 which is the worst of his career. And when you take a look at his career in 2019, it was bad, but nowhere near what last year was. He threw for 3,000 yards, 19 touchdowns, 13 interceptions, and a pass rating of 84.3. So people thought that was poor. That was the performance that the Jets saw last, and they said, okay, we got to get rid of this guy. He went from an 84.3 passer rating to a 71.9. That's what he did last season. He is not a starting quarterback in this league. On the other side, you have Baker Mayfield, who from what I've heard has not started camp out the way fans wanted him to. He was overthrowing and underthrowing some deep balls. He came out swinging, which as a fan you like to see. He wants to prove early that he's capable of those types of throws. We know that Baker has that mentality, he has that grit, he has that chip on his shoulder. So it does not surprise me at all that he came out swinging. But a few days ago, I think this was on Wednesday, he made two incredible throws at DJ Moore, who's the Panthers' number one receiver. One was a slant route right into the end zone, and he absolutely threaded the tightest needle on this pass to get it to him. The other was a 45-yard pass down the sideline, which Moore had to adjust and make the catch to, but it was perfectly placed. There was also a side-by-side -side clip. There's been a ton of side-by-side -side clips, a lot of comparisons over if you're a Panthers fan, you've been you've been following Panthers Twitter, training camp Twitter, whatever you whatever the case may be. There was a side-by-side -side clip of them releasing throws next to each other on the first day of camp. And oh my goodness, even the little things that Baker does on his throws is miles ahead of Darnold. If you watch this video, Baker keeps his eyes off the receiver right until he throws the ball to him. Darnold has his eyes tracked on the receiver the entire time, which is evident in his play from last year because he would telegraph every single throw. 
This is the difference between the two QBs. Both have thrown interceptions in their career. I'm not going to pick sides. I'm not going to downplay Baker's play from last year. It was poor. It was worse than poor. It was really bad. Whenever Darnold throws balls, he is telegraphing every single one he makes. Every single one. The accuracy is always there, but his eyes are always on the target from the snap. And the secondary, the middle linebackers, they read it like a book. Baker is quite the opposite. He keeps his eyes away from the target until the end, but once he locks eyes with his receiver, he just misfires and is not accurate with his throws. So the question you have to present is, would you rather have a quarterback who can read defenses better but needs to work on accuracy? Or do you want the guy you can throw accurately but needs to work on reading defenses? This is a tough trade-off you have to ask yourself. Personally, I think it is a more important aspect to understand defenses, to understand which way to throw the ball, how to fool defenses. That's something that is a more important skill or a harder skill to learn, I should rather say, than just accurately throwing the ball. Because you can just go out and target practice and you know throw 100 balls a day and work on that. But reading defenses in the NFL is something that requires lots of commitment, lots of time to. So the ball is in Baker Mayfield's hands. You know, it's that the the odds are in his favor. The odds are definitely in his favor in this situation, but he needs to play better. Just looking around at the Panthers, they ranked in the bottom half of the NFL last season in scoring before the half. So they've been working in camp on improving this. At the end of practice on Friday, Matt Rule gave both Darnold and Mayfield a chance to see if they could score with 145 left. Darnold got the touchdown. Baker got a long field goal. It's definitely back and forth, like I said. Although this is camp, we can't take anything legitimate until the season starts. It does seem that Darnold has been playing better than he once was. He, I hate to say it, I hate to say it, but he has the nod right now. He has the nod right now over Baker. And I really wish I could be there to see it firsthand. But this is going to turn out to be an extremely tight race. And Matt Rule has said it. He, he said that from the start. He's going to have a fair shot for both these guys to prove themselves. And let's not, let's not count out Matt Corral, a quarterback from Ole Miss taken in the, I think it was the third round, third round selection, third, maybe Maybe I'm thinking third quarterback selected in the draft this year. He was a high, let's remember, he was a Heisman favorite probably until he came to Alabama to play the Crimson Tide last year. Um, you know, he's a he's a great player, and I've been seeing clips of him in training camp. There was this one where he was doing a, a bunch of different things in one drill. He was doing an agility, agil- I think it was an agility ladder, and then he caught the pass with one hand above his head, and then he backed up, and he splashed threw a ball into a target from 30 yards out and absolutely splashed it. And he did that twice in the practice. So this kid is, from what I've been hearing, has been very impressive. And it's a good thing for him to not be considered one of the guys that's going to start, I think, even though I think he could. I think his talent is there. But it's better for him to take take a sit back, let Baker and Sam deal with all this pressure and he could just go out and play football and he could just be like look I know what I'm capable of you guys don't have to look at me like that as a starter but I'm going to show you that I'm coming and I'm the future so I think in a year or two from now he could be the future of this Carolina Panthers team 
I think he was the best quarterback selected out of that draft. If you want to debate it, I think he could definitely make the argument for that. Let's just compare the stats side by side for just argument's sake. We're going to have the career stats for Baker, career stats for Darnold. Baker Mayfield has 14,125 yards, 92 touchdowns, 56 interceptions, passer rating of 87.8, record of 29-30 and 30 as a starter. Sam Darnold, 10,624 yards, 54 touchdowns, 52 interceptions, rating of 76.9. The number that stands out to me, Sam Darnold has almost as many interceptions as he does touchdowns. And you guys were saying that Baker was an interception machine. Yeah, he is. He has more interceptions, but he has almost double the touchdowns that Darnold has. And his passer rating is 11 points higher. And let's say, yeah, and Sam Darnold's record is 17 and 32. I forgot to mention that. 17 and 32. That is pitiful. If Baker Mayfield loses his competition, that is utterly embarrassing. Not only is it embarrassing for him, it's embarrassing for fans of the Carolina Panthers and for their organization. He needs to win this job. I think he will win this job. I think even if he isn't the week one starter, he will be the starter in week two because Sam Darnold is going to tr- is going to trot out on that field. He's going to throw three passes and everyone's going to be reminded about how horrible he is. And I hate to bash quarterbacks like that, but he is not the answer. Trust me. He's going to be on the field for one quarter. Everyone was going to be reminded why he is not a starter in this league. Panthers fans will be livid. They need fans in the seats. They were so excited about Baker coming to Charlotte. Listen to that clip I played at the very start of this segment. We want Baker. Anything is better than Sam Darnold. Let's see how things develop over these next few weeks and keep pounding. All right, guys, that's all for this week's episode of On the DL Podcast. Again, thank you guys so much for tuning in. We're going to have plenty of more exciting guests coming up over the next few episodes, so stay tuned, keep streaming the podcast, tell your friends about it, and make sure to, again, follow the DL Sports Instagram page, at DL Sports, that's at DL Sports, C-O-M. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.